And it's our belief that as we change people's minds about the church, God will change people's minds about Jesus. In other words, we can show people that the church is not a place for hypocrites. It's a place for broken sinners desperately clinging to grace. And that the church is not an institution that sucks the life out of you. It's an utterly unique kind of family that just keeps giving and giving and giving and being a blessing to people. It's a place where generosity is, is extravagant. And also that, a church, that the church is not a pl- some institution or, or, a, or a place where good people go. In fact, it's not a place at all. The church is who we are. The church is not where you go. It's where you live. That's, that's the church. It's who we are. We are part of a living body of Christ that's on the move to redeem people with the gospel of Jesus, to give people hope in Jesus. Not so that we can feel good about ourselves, but so that more and more people can taste and see that God is good. That's what this is about. And so today we're going to look at a very short and very powerful psalm that gives us a picture of what the church should be like. The church should be something like that, what we just saw. That's what the church should be. This psalm, you know, some some of you will will read this psalm or hear this psalm, and you might think to yourselves, that sounds wonderful, but I don't think it's realistic. That hasn't been my experience. But in my opinion, and in God's opinion, I think, it is realistic, and we shouldn't settle for anything less than what this psalm holds out to us. The picture this psalm paints of God's people doing life together. So the big idea this morning is unity is better than independence. And we're going to start by reading Psalm 133. It's just four verses, the whole psalm. And we're going we're to spend our time going through it this morning. Would you please join me? Psalm 133, beginning in verse 1. This is a psalm of David, a psalm of ascents, a psalm of praise. He says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is one of those uh, psalms where the first line is really easy to understand, and the rest of the psalm, you read it, and you're like, what in the world does that mean? Am I right? So let's, we're going to walk through this psalm together this morning so that hopefully we all have a clear understanding of what it means. Now, my wife and I have five young children. Our oldest is 12, our youngest is three. And one of the things that would make our lives so completely sweet is if our children would just dwell together in unity. When I read this psalm, I think of my family. That's what I think of first. So those of you who have kids, are you with me? I mean... Nothing really causes more chaos and discouragement in our home than when our kids treat each other with disrespect or disdain. And they fight and they argue and they take things from one another. Now, I know, listen, I've told you so many times as a pastor, you know, I've said to you many times, I'm sure, you can, you can experience God's joy, God's peace, God's life, no matter what's going on around you. Whether your kids are having a good day or a bad day, you can live and rest in the gospel of Jesus and enjoy God's presence in your life and God's happiness. I truly believe that. And I've experienced that for myself many times. But many times, 
If I'm being honest, I haven't. <laughs> and the reason is my kids. Because, and my wife will, will, will totally agree with this, a lot of times our attitude on a daily basis is shaped by how well our kids get along. That's just the reality. I'll come, I'll come home from work on some certain days, and as soon as I walk in the door, I can get a sense of what kind of day my wife has had, and I know oftentimes that her attitude when I come home or her disposition is, is, has been shaped by how well our kids have been getting along throughout the day. And this is especially true in the summer when they're not at school, when they're home all day. And that's just the reality. It's something you as moms wrestle with on a daily basis. Am I going to let my attitude and my state of mind be affected by my kids? Or am I going to embrace what's true about me in the gospel? And it's something we just have to wrestle with as parents. And the Bible doesn't hide this fact from us. I mean, the Bible is so honest about families and how difficult it is to live, to, you, know, you know, for families to dwell together in unity. We read about so many things in the Old Testament that are broken and torn apart by deception, betrayal, um, rage, jealousy, favoritism, bitterness, envy, all of those things. We read about it over and over and over again. And then we see some of those things playing out in our homes, and it just discourages us. But there's also many times in my family, and I'm sure yours, where your kids do dwell together in unity, and it's a sweet thing. It's good and pleasant, and you love it. It gives you hope. It keeps you going. My wife and I went camping this last week, earlier in the week, and I don't know, something about camping just brings out the best and the worst in us. You know, I mean, we're, we're all together in a... In, in a tight space for what seems like days and it's just a couple of days. <laughs> and, um, you know, our, our, when we're all together and just kind of forced to be together in close quarters like that, um, in, a little, in a little pop-up camper, it ju- you just kind of get on each other's nerves a little bit, you know? And your kids are always there. They're always underfoot. You're, there's no getting away from them. So when, when you're in your house, you can kind of go to another part of the house or outside if you need to, to get a break. But when you're, when you're camping, you know, you have nowhere to go. So we went camping, and sure enough, our kids, they had kind of a rough couple days. They were, they were kind of button heads and arguing and all, and all this stuff. But then, in just a moment, everything changed. We were all sitting in the camper playing Monopoly together with our older kids and having a great time, enjoying the game. And, and we look over, and Avery and Keller, our three-year-old and six-year-old daughters, are rolling around in this bed together, and they're licking each other and giggling. And we're like looking at them like, what in the world is going on? And we finally figured out they're pretending that they're kittens. And this is what they're doing, just laughing and licking each other. And at first I thought it was really weird, and then I realized it was just beautiful. It was just, it's just a beautiful thing, what's going on right here. It doesn't happen that often. But it was, my wife and I looked at each other and we just laughed and smiled. And it's the little things as, my, as parents that give you hope, you know. That's, that's what this is. It's, it's brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity. It's, it's a good and pleasant thing. It's sweet. It's so good. Now this psalm is about more than just family members getting along. David, the author of this psalm, has a bigger picture in, in his this. And so we're going to walk through it together. In verse 1, what he says, and this is pretty straightforward. He says, Behold how pleasant it is 
might need a new battery up here, by the way. I'm not sure if I'm, why I'm cutting out so much, but. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And this is what he's saying. It's very simple. He's saying, look at the ideal. Look at this, okay? Brothers, and, he, and he's talking about God's people dwelling together in peace and unity, enjoy, enjoying true brotherhood, mutual concern. Mutual care for one another. No favoritism. Everyone is of equal value. This is good and pleasant. This is how things were meant to be. That's what he's saying. This is how it was meant to be. David apparently had this experience when he's with God's people and they're together. Worshiping together. Praying together. Caring together. Serving together. Moving together. Laughing together. Crying together. Listening and learning together. That is how things were meant to be. Sinclair Ferguson is a theologian, and he, he, says, he said this statement once, and it just stuck in my mind. He said, if you don't know the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and experience his presence when you gather with his people, you are still to discover what life was really meant to be like. He's saying that you haven't lived until you've experienced this. Brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity. The family of God doing life together in unity, in harmony. It's so good. It's better than independence. How good is it? David gives us two very interesting comparisons. He says in verse 2, it, that's again the subject here is unity. Unity is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron. Running down on the collar of his robes. Now, Aaron, of course, was the first high priest in Israel. His distinct honor and ministry was marked by certain clothing and certain rituals. For example, when he was ordained, his sons were also ordained, and and his sons were sprinkled with holy oil. But on Aaron, oil was poured. It was poured out over the top of his head, and it dripped down, down on his beard, his collar, his robe. And so he, Aaron, was set apart like nobody else was. The high priest was especially marked this way and anointed this way because he would have to carry a very heavy burden for the people. Once a year, in fact, the high priest would have to go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, to represent the people before God and make a kind of atoning sacrifice. That's what he did. and This was a very heavy burden for him. Nobody knew for sure if he would come back out alive, in fact. And he had these jewels on his shoulders, 12 jewels, which carried the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, so that when he was anointed, the oil would fall, and it would trickle down the jewels and down his robe, and the priest would carry these names of the 12 tribes into the presence of God as a representative of the people. So what does this have to do with us and the way we live life? What does this have to do with unity? That's the question. Here's what I think it means. When we are dwelling together in unity... When we are loving each other and and putting other people's needs before our own, when we're laying down our rights for the sake of others, choosing unity over independence, when we are being humble and taking care of one another and all of these things, we are being set apart like the high priest. We are being consecrated. We are standing out. I mean, think of what it must have been like to witness the ordination of the high priest. If you were an Israelite, you might see this only once in your life. 
And all the thousands of people who were assembled on that day, of all of them, only one stood out, and it was the high priest. No one else wore what he wore. No one else glowed like he glowed. With what, all the gems and the jewels all over his body and, his, and his, um, his headdress and all of that, no one else had oil dripping down their beard and clothing. No one else was honored this way in God's presence. And David is simply saying that when we do life together with unity in what God has done, we will stand out like that in the world. We will demand people's attention. Our unity is like holy oil that sets us apart from everyone else. That's his point. We have a special kind of unity that we share in the person of God that nobody else in the world can experience. He makes a second comparison. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So what does mountain dew have to do with all this? I'm not talking about the soda. <laughs> what is, this is Mountain Dew. This is what he's talking about. What does it have to do with unity? So Mount Hermon was one of the tallest mountains in the Middle East, the tallest mountain in Israel. It was, it was north of Israel. It was known for its heavy amount of dew. It was, it was so tall that it had snow on its peaks, snow-covered peaks most, most of the year. And the sun would melt the snow, and it would run down the rest of the mountain, Sort of like the oil in Aaron's beard. Uh, in Genesis 27, in fact, we read about, we're reading about a family that's completely broken. Isaac's family. Remember Isaac's family? He had the, two, the twin boys, Jacob and Esau. I don't know why we say Jacob and Esau, because Esau was born first, but we always say Jacob and Esau. And Esau and Jacob were very different, very different people, very different goals in life, different personalities. The, their mother uh, favored one of them and the father favored the other and it tore the family apart. There was, there was sibling rivalry, there was conflict, there was tension, betrayal, there was fear, rage, running and hiding, all of that. It was a completely messed up family and that was carried on throughout generations actually. And when Isaac blesses Jacob, thinking it's Esau, remember Jacob, he, he, Esau was hairy and Jacob was smooth and, and so Jacob tricked his father. He deceived his father because the firstborn, Esau, was supposed to get the birthright, but Jacob wanted it, and so he dressed himself. His father was blind, basically, and he dressed himself up like his brother, and he deceived his father. And when Isaac blesses Jacob, thinking it's Esau, in Genesis 27, this is what he says. See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Now listen to this. May God give you the dew of heaven. And the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. This phrase, the dew of heaven, and this idea of mountain dew, actually, is a phrase of blessing in the Old Testament. It's something that's associated with blessing and fruitfulness and richness of the land and, and the fulfillment of God's covenant. That's what mountain dew means to Old Testament people. So what does this image have to do with the way we do life together today? But what David is saying is that when, when we are living in unity, right, this kind of unity that we enjoy in what God has done, we're enjoying something that comes directly from heaven and flows down. The unity that we have in Jesus Christ is from God. It's not something we can create. It's something we can only maintain. It's something that's a gift from God. It's a blessing from God. It's something we should fight for. So the idea is that brotherly love and unity will make us fruitful 
It's a gift from God. It's a total blessing. We shouldn't settle for anything less than that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't reject God's gift. Again, I, I think we have to ask ourselves, how do we feel about church? Is church good and pleasant to you? Does your church make you think of brothers dwelling together in unity? Can you say, being with the people of God has the effect on me, like when I'm up in the mountains on a clear summer morning and I see the dew glistening on the surface of the rock? Is it like breathing in clear mountain air? Does the church feel that way to you? And you know, on 4th of July, on this weekend, so many people, they go, they go up north or they go away to a, a, a cottage or something like that or they go stay on a lake somewhere. And they just sit on the, on, on the lake and they just take in that, that pure, clean air. And because there's, you know, there's, when, in places like that, there's, there's so little air and light pollution. And it's just, you feel refreshed. And that's sort of the picture we're given here of brothers dwelling together in unity. And when we think of the church, this is how we should feel, like refreshed. We should feel invigorated. We should feel safe. We should feel peace. It should be a place of unity and joy and peace and refuge for us. Now, unfortunately, and I probably don't have to tell you this, that's not always the case, is it? I mean, the reality is that churches do struggle to get along. I mean, people in churches struggle to get along. It's always been that way. A big chunk of the New Testament was written in response to division among God's people. There's whole letters of the New Testament that were written to churches because they weren't enjoying this kind of unity. There was unhealthy competition going on in the churches, unhealthy boasting. There were churches tolerating sin. There were churches where people just couldn't agree on certain things, things that ultimately weren't even that important. Churches were dividing over racial and social and religious issues. And so the New Testament writers have a lot to say about unity because they understood that unity is a gift from God and it is worth fighting for. And without it, we won't be happy and we won't stand out. And so God, in his wisdom, he says amazing things like this to us in the New Testament. I want to share a couple passages with you. In Romans chapter 12, This is what the Lord has said. He said, so we, talking to the church, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. In Christ, we're one. And individually, members of one another. That's not the language of independence, by the way. (laughs) Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's like the therefore. That's like, okay, so here's what, this is how we should treat each other. We should love each other and honor each other. If this is who we are, this is how we should treat each other. This would be the appropriate response. Love and honor. In 1 Corinthians 12, we read a whole lot about about this subject. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote here. He said, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He's talking about spiritual gifts and what they're for. Spiritual gifts are for the common good. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. As he chose. 
But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Now listen to this. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now doesn't that make you think of the clip we watched at the beginning? This is supposed to be a family. A family. A family unit. That, by the way, is built from a marriage. And in case you didn't know, there is no human relationship that enjoys stronger, a stronger union than a husband and wife being married. That is a total, like, I want to be careful how I say this. It, it, it's a total laying down of your rights, marriages. It's saying, you know what? Marriage is, marriage is the ultimate statement that unity is better than independence, isn't it? Isn't that what marriage is? When you marry someone, that's what you're saying. And, and, and I know we live in a culture today where independence is becoming more and more valuable to people, more and more cherished by people, and that's why fewer and fewer people are getting married. Because they know, they're smart enough to know that marriage is the ultimate statement of unity. And, that, and if you're getting married, you had better believe that unity is better than independence. If you think independence is better than unity, your marriage will never survive. In fact, our relationship with Jesus is described as a marriage. And when a husband and wife build their marriage on what Jesus Christ has done, their family will function like this. Where the members of the family have mutual care, there's no favoritism, there's no deception, there's no running and hiding. We confess our sins to one another, we forgive, we're restored, and we move on. And when one member member suffers, every member suffers. When one member rejoices, every member rejoices. When one member is honored, every member's honored. We celebrate together. That's the church, a family. And it's sweet. It's so good when we experience it. That's experiencing the risen Lord Christ. That's what it's about. Michael Horton, another theologian, he says this, When God raises our eyes from ourselves to his son through the gospel, we begin to see ourselves surrounded by a community of people who are no longer simply neighbors, but brothers and sisters. Christ and his gospel is the tie that binds. I did not choose these people to be my brothers and sisters. God did. Like me, they are elected, redeemed, called, and justified By God in Christ. That's a powerful statement. He's saying that there's there's one thing and only one thing that's able to lift us up uh, out of all of our petty allegiances and keep us together through good times and bad. And that one thing is the gospel of Jesus. The good news that God has done something about our wretched condition in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That God has made right all of our wrongs through the blood of Jesus and his cross. And the cross, we're told, has the power to unite people no matter how different they are. At the cross, we see how wicked we are, that our sin is deserving of death. And God, in order to make peace between himself and us, crucified an innocent man, his own son, Jesus. Our sin is bad enough that that was the only way that we could be forgiven, was through the death of an innocent man. 
That's how wicked we are. But at the cross, we also see how loved we are. That God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for our sins so that we could enjoy his presence in our lives. So that we could enjoy true brotherhood. Brotherhood with Jesus and his people. The cross destroys conventional wisdom. The cross destroys our unhealthy competitive spirits. It opens our arms to one another. It destroys our pride. Nothing can unite us like the cross. Nothing. And the older I get, the more this becomes clear to me. I remember many years ago, it had to be 15 years ago, I was a young Christian. My wife and I were dating at the time. I was going to this church uh, called New Hope Community Church. And it was, a very, it was a small church at the time, but people were excited. It was strong and healthy, and it was growing. And there was a, a, a pretty large group of college people at the time uh, that were attending the church. And we had a, this college group that met regularly. And one night, this new guy came to the college group. I was in my mid-20s. I was one of the older people in this group. I was like 25. And this guy came. He was like eight years younger than me. I think he was 18 at the time. Or maybe he was 19, and I was even older. But I know we we're about eight years apart, and he had just graduated from high school. He was working at a hardware store, and uh, he was, he was, I remember he, he was, we were talking that night, and he was on a list to become a plumber's apprentice. He wanted to become a plumber. And as we talked more and more, I just, one thing I noticed was that I had very little in common with this guy. He's a super nice guy, and we, he was easy to talk to, very unassuming, very humble, very kind, and I enjoyed talking with him, but I just realized, you know, I don't think that this is the kind of guy that I'll become, like, really good friends with. Because, you know why? Because we just don't have much in common, and we didn't. And on the surface, we still don't. <laughs> on the surface, we still, we're very different personalities, very different, you know, kind of outlooks on life to some degree, and different hobbies, different lifestyles, like, just didn't have a lot in common. But it's something amazing happened. Uh, shortly after we met that first night, he asked me if I would be his accountability partner and, and if, I, we, if I would help him grow in his faith. And I didn't necessarily feel qualified to do that, but I felt like I needed an accountability partner too, so I said yes. And we started meeting regularly, uh, about weekly, for quite a long time. A couple years, I think. We met regularly. We studied the Bible together. We had very honest conversations together. And our relationship was built on the cross. That's what, that's what we talked about Jesus a lot. We talked about our failures. We talked about our prayer needs. We talked, we talked a lot about our failures. And that, that really kind of encouraged us to talk about the cross because what else do you do with your failures? What are you going to do? Just beat yourself up? No, we got to take our failures to the cross where Jesus was judged for, for all of it. So that's what we kept doing. And our relationship kept growing. Our friendship kept growing. And today, this guy, 15 years later, is one of the best friends I've ever had in my life. And we might not have a lot of things in common, but I've never known a more faithful friend. He, we, we are just... Great friends. It's, when I think of him, I think of this passage. I think of brothers dwelling together in unity. I never had a brother. He has three brothers. I don't, think his, I don't think he gets along that great with his brothers, but he is a brother to me. He's a brother. And 
Our relationship is built on the cross. That's what this is about. And, and so we sometimes hold to a shallow view of the cross when we look around at the people in our church and we think, what do I have in common with these people? Do I really belong here? Where do I fit in? Does anyone really understand me or what I'm going through? And, and we kind of just keep people at arm's length. And we assume, we assume that these people are not worth doing life with intimately because we don't have certain things in common. That, my friends, is really sad. We are missing out. We are missing out on the goodness and the pleasantness of unity when we live that way, when we treat each other that way. We are, here's the truth about us. We are, you know what we have in common? The most important thing. We are all sinners saved by grace through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing about us. That's what we have in common. We have the strongest foundation to build relationships on. We are all being made into the likeness of Jesus. We all through faith have the same Father and the same Spirit and the same Savior. We are all forgiven. We are all in desperate need of friendship and community. We might not have the same interests and the same hobbies. We might not all agree on what makes a great church service. We might not, we might not have the same love for the same sports or the same sports teams. But let me tell you something. If you really want to see what you have in common and you want to enjoy this kind of unity and you want to see how good it is, talk more about Jesus. Talk more about Jesus with each other. Because that's the best thing we have in common is Jesus and the cross. That's, that's it. If we would just talk more about that and talk more about how, how much we need Jesus and how much we love Jesus, our relationships would grow exponentially. We have an opportunity to show the world something, something utterly unique, something different, something good and pleasant, and that's unity in Jesus Christ. So when someone in my church slights me or wrongs me or annoys me, I can remember that God is using them to change me. God is using the difficult and annoying people, not people like me, by the way, but those people, he's put us together, I'm kidding, of course, he's put us all together and called us together and chosen us to do life together as a local body of Christ here to rub each other's rough edges off. Did you know that? One of my favorite authors compares it to God putting us like little rocks into a big bag and just shaking us up so that we collide and rub each other in uncomfortable ways. And he says, sometimes sparks fly, but eventually we become smooth, beautiful gemstones. That's a, that's a great picture of the church. And one of, I just want to ask, do you believe in the gospel? Because if you believe that Jesus Christ died to forgive your sins and my sins and everyone's who calls themselves a disciple, then you have to believe that the gospel is robust enough and relevant enough to heal a church full of broken people to mend any broken relationship, whether it's in your family. I don't care how many years it's been since you talked to that alienated family member or that alienated, you know, person you used to attend a church with. It doesn't matter. 
The gospel is stronger than whatever it is that separates us and divides us. And it's able to bring us to a place of unity where we can say together how good and pleasant it is to be with the people of God, to be brothers and sisters united at the cross. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful psalm that we read this morning. We thank you, God, for the hope it holds out to us. And I think that every one of us would agree that when family members, if we want to take this literally, if it's talking about family members, when family members are living in unity, it's a precious thing. We wish we could just stay there forever. And, but when, when people united by the blood of Christ do life together with humility and unity and love, Nothing is sweeter, God. I mean, this is one of the great blessings you've given us to enjoy. And, and this is something we will enjoy for eternity. You've told us, God, that when history comes to an end and Jesus comes back to earth, that he will unite his people under one kingdom to dwell with him in perfect harmony forever. We will all be singing together. We'll all be praising together. We'll all want the same thing. We'll all be enjoying God's presence and God's glory forever. That's our hope. Perfect unity in the presence of the physical risen Lord Jesus. And we get to taste it now. Just a little bit. We get to taste it. And I pray, God, that we as a church would fight for it and long for it and keep it to the best of our ability because of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ on the cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.